When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. Hope you are doing well. I am very pleased to have MJ Tro on the show. He is a prolific Welsh writer and has written now over 100 books, mostly fiction, including multiple detective series with protagonists like Inspector Lestrade, based on the character from the Sherlock Holmes stories, and the subject of our episode today, Christopher Kit Marlowe. He has also written nonfiction true crime, with subject matter ranging from Jack the Ripper to the Thames Torso Murders to the mystery surrounding the disappearance of the princes in the tower. The focus of today's interview is his book titled Who Killed Kit Marlowe? A Contract to Murder in Elizabethan England. So glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for inviting me. It's very kind. It's good to be here. Yeah, uh, great to have you. So Kit Marlowe figures prominently in your work, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. What is it about him that you find so interesting? Kit Marlowe is almost an exact contemporary of William Shakespeare. Marlowe's two months older than than Shakespeare. And uh, they must have known each other in London. They must have, I think, worked together on various plays, projects for the theatre, as it was then. Um, But what what really fascinates me about the man is uh, what we discovered uh, almost by accident, really, in the 1920s, that as well as being an outstanding playwright and uh, poet, he was a spy. Uh, He worked for the English government. So if, if I can mix all kinds of metaphors here, if we think of the James Bond stories, and we've got um, the character M, 
who is the head of an espionage organization, MI5, MI6, call it what you will. Um, then that is Sir Francis Walsingham, who worked for Queen Elizabeth I. And under him were a number of agents, like James Bond himself, as it would be today. And one of those agents uh, that were in those days called intelligers, intelligencers or projectors was Kit Marlowe. Yeah, and, and for the film buffs out there, of course, Jeffrey Rush did an incredible job playing Francis Walsingham in the movie Elizabeth. He, he was really good. He was. It was a, a superb film that I, I really rated. I think it was extremely good. Uh, and, and Rush was absolutely ideal in the role, yes. Yep. So when and where was Kit Marlowe born? What was his childhood like? And, and what kind of education did he have? Okay, he was born uh, on the 6th of February, 1564, uh, in Canterbury, Kent. Now, Canterbury is one of the most important uh, cities in England, simply because there's a cathedral there. It's one of the oldest in the country. It was uh, set up by St. Augustine, who missionary in the 6th century, uh, and um, it became the most important shrine in England, one of the most important in Europe. And that was because in the year 1170, uh, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, was murdered in the cathedral by four knights who may or may not have been sent by the King Henry II. Henry and Becket had been great friends, but they fell out. Uh, over how to run the church, basically. Uh, and um, it's at least possible, the, the legend certainly says, that uh, Henry said, well, no one rid me of this turbulent priest. And the four knights who were standing by heard this, and they took the hint, went to Canterbury, and found Thomas Becket praying uh, at one of his altars, and they killed him. They cut off the top of his head. Within weeks, um, miracles were attributed to Thomas Beckett. Uh, he was seen by various people still alive, uh, and he performed miracles. So within a year, he was made a saint by the Catholic Church. And therefore, his tomb uh, became a place of pilgrimage. People came from all over the country. They came from all over Europe um, to worship at the shrine of Thomas Beckett. Now, just around the corner from that cathedral is the King's School. Uh, this, too, was a medieval organization, and it was almost certainly where Christopher Marlowe went to school. Marlowe's um, parents are, uh, we don't know much about his, his mother. Her name was Catherine. She came from the port of Dover, which isn't very far away. Uh, his father was John, John Marlowe, and he was uh, a shoemaker. But typically of, of men of the 16th century, he was involved in all kinds of other things as well. Um, he was a moneylender. He was in and out of jail on various minor crimes. Uh, he was a property dealer. Um, he's a, a, a wheeler and dealer. And this is he's fairly typical. Um, William Shakespeare's father was in exactly the same position in the town of Stratford, much further north. 
Uh, and what happened was that uh, young Kit began work as a potboy, according to legend, in a local inn called The Star. Uh, in other words, from about the age of eight, he was carrying pints of ale, pints of beer for customers. He then got a scholarship to the King's School at the age of nine, uh, and there he would have learned Latin and Greek. He would also have learned how to debate, how to argue, uh, always in Latin and Greek. So his education was a big step up from anything his parents would have known. We're not even sure whether his father could read or write, and he certainly didn't own any, any books. He had no, no library. Now, the reason that Kit Marlowe got the scholarship uh, was that he was taken under the wing of Matthew Parker, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And it was fairly standard for archbishops and bishops to um, select intelligent boys and give them a, a help in terms of their education, give them a, a hand up. So Kit seems to have been one of those. From uh, the King's School, he then went on again uh, under Matthew Parker's mentorship uh, to Cambridge University, to Corpus Christi College. Now, I've been there several times. It's a fascinating place. Uh, the college has changed since Marlowe's day, and we're not quite sure where he lived. Um, but certainly, uh, the uh, air, the Part of the college where he lived, called the Old Court, is still there. And presumably he would have had one of those rooms, which as a scholar, as they were all called then, students were called scholars, he would have had to share with at least two other scholars, all of them under the auspices of Archbishop Parker. So was he a good student in college? I, I think he, he must have been. We, we don't have much information. We've simply got his name in various college lists. And by the way, uh, the, the name is, is spelt in, in about 15 different ways. It's Morley, it's Marley, it's Merlin. It's all over the place. It's come down to us, of course, as Marlowe now. Um, we know he could sing because that was an, an important part of uh, becoming uh, a student at the King's School. He sang in the cathedral as a choir boy, and almost certainly he sang in the chapel of Corpus Christi too. Uh, so being able to sing and to read music was an essential part of it. Um, here he at uh, Cambridge, he'd have continued his work uh, with Latin and Greek. He would have learned uh, Hebrew as well, uh, all of it for Bible studies, because the assumption was made that most scholars would go on to careers either in the law or in the church, uh, and they would, they would need Latin for both of those. So he seems to have been uh, a, a good scholar. There was no record of his ever being in trouble of any kind, although we do know that he liked to translate uh, rather naughtier Latin uh, texts like, for example, um, Ovid. And I can just quote one, one line in English from one of Ovid's poems. I cling her naked body, down she fell. Judge you the rest. Being tired, she bade me kiss. Jove, send me more such afternoons as this. Isn't that great? I just love it. 
<laughs> so here is a young student. He'd have been 17, 18, I suppose. Uh, and although he has to read terribly boring Latin texts, he has to read uh, Cicero and, and the usual people. Uh, he really wants to have a go at, at the naughtier, smuttier stuff, which you'd expect from a 17 or an 18 year old. Yeah, that's true. So, so it's believed that Marlowe was recruited to, to be a spy while he was in college. Yes. Uh, obviously, we don't have any information ab about this. Um, somebody, somebody said, uh, one of the great writers about espionage, uh, said the whole point about a secret service is that it is secret. Uh, we don't have the information. All that's changed now, of course. And nowadays, we, we know who the head of MI5 is. Um, often um, it is quoted in the newspapers. Uh, I was lecturing on a, on a cruise ship a few years ago, uh, and I met an American guy, and I, I said, oh, I, what do you do? He said, uh, oh, I, I work for the CIA. I, I, I was gobsmacked. I, I just stood him with my mouth open. And I said, <laughs> do you? <laughs> and he was perfectly okay about it. You know, he, he wasn't betraying any, any secrets. He was just telling me what his job was. Now, that was very different in the 16th century. Then everything was incredibly secretive. There were, there were good reasons for that, as I'm sure we'll come on to later. Um, so exactly how this happened, we don't know. It's possible that he was recruited by another agent called Nicholas Font, uh, who was a Cambridge scholar as well, although several years older than Marlowe. Or it's possible that he was recruited directly by Francis Walsingham who was the Queen's spymaster. Walsingham was also an ex-Cambridge man, and it was perfectly standard practice for people like Font and Walsingham to go back to their old college from time to time. Uh, it looked as though they were just having a, a bit of a holiday and saying hello, but in fact, of course, they were, they were looking for useful men to recruit uh, for the espionage system. So those who, who believe that he was a spy while attending school, they point to the fact that he had missed large chunks of time. And also, he, he was spending more money than a young man in his position would have had available to him, which suggests that he was being well paid to go on missions. Yes. Um, people like Marlowe on a, on a scholarship would not have had all that much money um, the daily food of, of scholars was, was pretty awful. Um, but th there were three levels of students. Uh, there were the um, gentlemen who, who were the sons of gentry, sons of aristocracy. They had plenty of cash uh, and dressed ostentatiously. Uh, they, they were really um, swaggering around. Uh, they probably didn't do very much work either. Uh, then you had the second level. Um, Secundus Convictus was the Latin term for them. That's where Marlowe would be. Then you have the Sizers, and the Sizers are the poorest of all. They really act, acted as servants for the others. They, they were literally working their way through college, as we'd say today. Um, now, Marlowe being in the middle seems to have had more money than he should have done. After all, his father, although he was a bit of a dodgy wheeler and dealer, was essentially a shoemaker, and shoemakers didn't earn very much. So how could Marlowe afford to go to the buttery, which was the place where you can have decent food? And above all, why was he so often absent? 
It is still the case today in in Cambridge University that you have to appear in hall um, having dinner on certain nights. If you don't do that, then they don't give you a degree. They don't let you qualify. Uh, and although Marlowe got his first degree, his, his BA, in 1584, uh, he was not being given his second degree, his MA, his Master of Arts, because he hadn't uh, met those requirements. He hadn't been in hall when he should have been. Where was he? We don't know. But we do know, and this is most unusual. In fact, uh, Marlowe's is the only example I can think of of it happening. The government intervened. They sent a letter to the authorities of Corpus Christi College, uh, this was in June 1587, to say that Christopher Marlowe has been absent, quote, whereby he had done Her Majesty good service. They obviously didn't say any more than that, but the inference was very clear. He was working for the government in some capacity. And if the government writes to you, uh, even if you're the master of Corpus Christi, uh, then you comply. So Marlowe got his MA degree in that summer of 1587. What kind of things do you think he was doing for the government? If I can just go back a few years, what we have in the early 16th century is an appallingly corrupt Catholic church. Uh, priests are marrying, uh, which was against canon law. Uh, they're making money uh, in all sorts of ways. They're selling indulgences. Uh, you, you were able to literally buy your way into heaven by giving vast amounts of money to, to the church. Now, most people just accepted this. That was, that was how it was. One man who didn't was a German monk called Martin Luther. This was in 1517, and Luther spoke out publicly about the corruption he saw in his own church. It was a total bombshell. Today, it would be all over the, the media, social and otherwise. Luther would be on endless television shows, uh, and uh, he was put on trial, accused of heresy in 1520. Astonishingly, he got away with it. Normally, the Catholic Church would have simply burned someone like him, but for a variety of reasons, they didn't. So straight away, what you have are the supporters of Luther, the Lutherans, backed by others who hated the Catholic Church, forming a breakaway group. These people were protesting, uh, so we call them Protestants. The Catholic Church fought back. Uh, what Luther is doing is called the Reformation. The fight back by the Catholic Church is the Counter-Reformation. And what we have all over Europe, including England, uh, in the 16th century is two armed camps. The Catholic Church desperately holding on to its power, the, the place it had always held in, in people's lives. And the new Protestant churches, led by people like Luther and there were other leaders, uh, who, who want to do it in a different way. Uh, and that is the background in which a man like Marlowe was involved. By the 1580s, England has its own church. The Church of England was created by the Queen, Elizabeth I, and it is a Protestant church. Catholics were the enemy, they were the baddies, uh, and they must be stamped out. So if we're right that Marlowe was working for Walsingham and Walsingham was the Queen's spymaster, 
uh, then Marlowe's job would be to root out Catholics, to spy on them, to listen outside doors, below stairs, picking up all kinds of gossip and reporting back to his spy masters, whether that was Nicholas Font or other people we don't know or directly to Walsingham himself. So you, you mentioned the, the Church of England getting its start under Queen Elizabeth, but I always thought that Henry VIII created the, the Church of England. Yes, it, it's very confusing. I, I always prefer to say that uh, what Henry did was to set up the church in England, which is a subtle difference. Henry VIII remained a, a good Catholic all his life. Uh, and he didn't intend to uh, for, for that to end. What he wanted, of course, was to run the church himself so that he could uh, arrange his own divorce from Catherine of Aragon to be able to marry Anne Boleyn and uh, get the son that he so desperately wanted. So the Church of England, in other words, what Elizabeth called the Via Media, the middle way, a compromise between Protestant and Catholic, that comes in in 1559 with Elizabeth. Before that, uh, I think of it as the church in England, still Catholic, but no longer um, beholden to the Pope. Now, was Kit Marlowe himself a Catholic? He was involved in, in something called the School of Night, correct? Yes, uh, he probably was. He, he, he would, I, I think probably he was brought up as a Catholic, yes. He was born in 1564. Church of England uh, only dates from uh, 1559, so it was, it was brand new when Marlowe was born. His parents would have been Catholics, I'm pretty sure, uh, and so it is very likely that, that Marlowe would have been brought up as, as a Catholic. The School of Night uh, is a fascinating group of, of people. It is almost certain that Marlowe was a member of, of that organisation, and if he wasn't, uh, he knew everybody in it. Today, um, we regard them as harmless scientists. They were mathematicians and physicists and, and, and so on, uh, who were simply trying to understand the natural world. A uh, century later, or nearly a century later, um, the Royal Society was set up in the reign of King Charles II, made up of gentlemen, just like them, uh, who wanted to know how the world ticked. Um, and nobody was that concerned by uh, Charles II's reign. It wasn't a problem. But back in the 1570s and 80s, if you were looking at the world in that way, then automatically you were regarded with a great deal of suspicion. We will be back in just a moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we are back. So Marlowe is working as a spy but he's also cultivating his writing identity. What was the, the transition like for Marlowe from scholar to playwright? And how did his work as a spy fit into that transition? The transition itself is, is very difficult. Um, there would have been plays performed uh, in Cambridge and in Canterbury too, these were the so-called mystery plays or miracle plays. They always had uh, a religious theme, uh, usually very uh, obvious things clash between heaven and hell. They were almost pantomimes, really, a lot of slapstick humour. The, the devil would appear, there'd be flashes of, of uh, lightning bolts and, and little explosions on stage. It was all rattling good good fun, and, and people of all classes enjoyed them. Uh, they were carried out sometimes by the church itself, sometimes by uh, travelling players belonging to the to the guilds, the craftsmen, uh, you would find in any major town and city. Uh, and it may be that Marlowe saw these uh, in Canterbury uh, and saw them at Cambridge and perhaps got involved in them himself. We don't know if he ever acted as such, uh, but he certainly became a playwright. It's probable he'd written his first play called Tamburlaine uh, before he left Cambridge. Now, the place to put plays on was London. Although these mystery and miracle plays traveled around the, the countryside, they were really small scale stuff. Um, they were done by amateurs. It was all very local uh, and, and uh, quite amateur, really. Uh, but London was different. London uh, was experiencing a, a complete revolution. Uh, in the 1580s, 1590s, uh, because the theatres uh, had come to life. And these theatres were being sponsored by some very powerful and important people. Most of the um, central English nobility had their own troupe of actors. 
uh, and they performed for the court. They appeared before the Queen. They appeared before um, some of the most important people in, in the country. Whenever there was a, a, a foreign visitor from a European state, then one of these plays would be performed for them. Um, Theatres like the Curtain and uh, the the Globe, th these were springing up all over London. The one we think Marlowe wrote for was the Rose, uh, which was in Southwark, that is south of the River Thames, uh, in a pretty disreputable area. Uh, it was full of from um, uh, prostitutes and drunks, and most of the land there was owned by the Bishop of Winchester. And the prostitutes who walked around the streets were called the Bishop of Winchester's geese. There were uh, bear gardens there as well, where bears were baited by dogs. They'd be bitten to death by the, the animals. And people would pay a small fortune to go and, and see that kind of thing. London was a, a pretty unpleasant and dangerous place to be. And Kit Marlowe became part of that kind of life, uh, putting on plays, under the auspices of um, impresarios like Philip Henslow, uh, the great actors of the day like Ned Allain and uh, Richard Burbage, uh, the comedian Kemp. Um, these are the actors who people would pay a small fortune to, to go and see. So Marlowe became caught up in all that. He must have made a reasonable amount of money from it too. He had to live, remember, and he presumably was getting some kind of salary from Walsingham, but we have no details of that whatsoever. So by being in London, where the plays are happening, then he is close to where the government is for most of the time. They're based in Whitehall, which I suppose is about less than a mile away from uh, the Rose Theatre. Uh, and he'd be able to keep, keep in touch with his bosses and find out what's going on in the capital. What was he spending his newfound money on? What kind of lifestyle was he living? That is shrouded in mystery. The fact that he mixed with these people, he was a personal friend of the, the courtier Walter Raleigh, for example, um, who was one of the most flamboyant men of his day, it implies that uh, he dressed lavishly. Um, he lived in a place called Norton Falgate, which is not a particularly good area of London. And we know that he shared with other other men. Um, Thomas Kidd, uh, another playwright, uh, was one of his, um, his his flatmates. So we don't honestly know what he spent his, his cash on. Um, he would have owned a horse or perhaps more than one. Uh, he would certainly have had weapons, sword, dagger, perhaps a pistol. There is the famous Marlowe portrait. Can, can I say a bit about, about that? Yes, please. This was a, a painting found in Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, uh, in 1953. It was in a pile of rubbish. It was in a very bad state indeed, falling apart. Uh, and when the, they found it, they, they could see it was a young man in Elizabethan costume and decided to restore it, which they duly did. So uh, we now have the restored version uh, displayed in Corpus Christi College. And many people believe that it is Christopher Marlowe. If it is, uh, I've got the picture in front of me now. He's wearing uh, a very expensive looking doublet. He's got uh, a lawn collar, which again was the state of, of the art fashion. 
Um, you can't see an earring, but it was very common for young men uh, in, in London to, to wear jewellery like that. Um, he's got buttons all over his um, doublet. It, it's only a head and shoulders portrait, so we can't see what, what he's wearing below his waist. And you just know, you just know he's got uh, a sword at his hip. He may well have, who knows, a dagger up, up his sleeve. All that cost money. And uh, when he was traveling later on, as he was, we know he went across uh, to the Low Countries, to Holland, almost certainly on government work, then he would need to spend money over there. He would have needed to have uh, bribed people. If he wanted in information about what was happening, then he would need to pass a few coins to servants and uh, other people to, to get them to tell him what he needed to know. So that's where his cash would have been going. So I'd like to go back to the School of Night for a moment. And Sir Walter Raleigh, by, by the way, was, was connected to the group. Uh, but, but one of the subjects discussed by members was atheism, correct? Which was highly subversive during this time. Yes. Um, uh, it, it's one of those things that, that's changed dramatically, hasn't it, over, over the centuries. Today, nobody turns a hair about atheism. It's perfectly uh, acceptable, a widely held view. Uh, but in the 16th century, it wasn't. It was the ultimate in heresy. If you say there is no God, then that means that you are damned and uh, the church, whether it's the Catholic church or the Protestant church, will make sure that you are damned in this life. They, they burned you alive. They burned you at the stake uh, for that kind of thing. And it's only a short step, really, um, from questioning any aspect of the Bible to outright heresy. Uh, the School of Night was a group of uh, men who wanted to know about the natural world. They wanted to know how the universe ticked, uh, because for centuries it had been accepted that um, the Earth was at the center of the universe and all the other planets, um, including the sun, revolved around it. And they also believed, of course, that the position of the stars of the planets themselves was vitally important in men's lives. And people like uh, Queen Elizabeth had their own magus, their, their, their own wise man, uh, who was a, a glorified wizard. Um, her most famous magus was uh, Dr. John Dee. And uh, she would do nothing without consulting Dee as to when the best time was for going on visits, for meeting uh, foreign statesmen, for going to war, anything at all would be decided by the position of the stars. So if you start to question that and say, well, this is actually rubbish, the stars are neither here nor there, uh, and they have no relevance to man at all in that sense, uh, then you query the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's like a, a pack of cards. If you remove one card from the pack, it all collapses. You can't believe, therefore, in the Old Testament. You can't believe in the New Testament. You can't believe in Jesus. You can't believe in God. Uh, and that would have been the most appalling thing for people of Marlowe's time to even hear about. So the members of the School of Night, people like Raleigh, People like the mathematician Thomas Harriot, 
people like um, Henry Carey, the uh, the son of Baron Hunsdon, who was a member of the Privy Council, uh, and almost certainly Marlowe himself, these men were were risking uh, fire and damnation. They were risking death by even discussing this kind of thing. So it was either a very brave person or it was an insane person uh, who would admit openly that they were atheist. We know from various writings in connection with the School of Night that some of them were talking along these lines. They were questioning the veracity of the Bible. Uh, they were saying things attributed to Marlowe that Moses, for example, was just a conjurer that the um, tricks he performed for the Pharaoh in the Old Testament were simply conjuring tricks, the kinds of thing that a stage magician would do. Worse, uh, and this shocks even today, um, Marlowe is reported to have said that Jesus was homosexual uh, and that he and John the Baptist were lovers. Now that I am an atheist, uh, and it shouldn't it shouldn't bother me. But uh, I remember when I first read that, I was really I was really fairly shocked by it. You can imagine back in the 16th century, if you say that kind of thing, it would have been regarded as absolutely outrageous. Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this early on in the interview. Uh, Shakespeare and Marlowe would have been the same age, but again, while we don't know if they ever actually met. They very likely did. That's exactly right. Yes, we, we don't know if they ever met. We don't know what the relationship was. I don't know if your listeners have seen what I think is another another brilliant film. We, we, we mentioned Elizabeth earlier and Jeffrey Rush playing Walsingham. Uh, I also rate uh, the movie Shakespeare in Love. Uh, and in that, what we have is a situation which I think is a very likely one that Will Shakespeare comes down from um, Stratford-on-Avon, where, where he lived as a, as a child, as a young man. He comes to London wanting to make his fortune. He gets involved in the um, um, drama circle, the theatres. He meets Kit Marlowe and is overawed by him because Marlowe was known then and has been since as the muse's darling. He had this brilliant new style of writing, Marlowe's mighty line, as the poet Ben Jonson called it. Uh, it's iambic pentameter. It's a, a five-beat rhythm to the line. The, the line I'm going to quote now is not Marlowe, but I can remember it because it sounds so right. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day. Count them yourself. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day. Five beats. That was the rhythm that Marlowe got in all his plays. That was the rhythm that Shakespeare copied and put into his as well. Everybody was doing it, but the first one who did it was Marlowe. So I've got a feeling that it was very much like that. Marlowe is the master. Marlowe is the expert. Marlowe is the uh, dramatic and literary genius. And Shakespeare is a kind of hanger-on who learnt at Marlowe's knee. They may have collaborated. It's, it's possible that Richard III, uh, written in uh, 1592 or thereabouts, was actually a joint undertaking, that it was um, mostly Shakespeare, but with bits of Marlowe put in. We honestly don't know. So during this period, as he's finding success as a playwright, he also finds himself in trouble quite a bit. 
He's getting into scrapes, fights, and and he even fights a duel, right? Yeah, he does. It, I, I think we have to assume that, that Kit Marlowe was very short-tempered. Dueling was technically illegal in England uh, in the 16th century, uh, but everybody ignored that. It was an affair of honour. And if two gentlemen disagreed with each other, then they would often um, end up uh, trying to kill each other, basically. Uh, You must realise that everybody uh, in the 16th century carried at least a knife. They carried it in the small of their back, and they were quite prepared to, to use it. Uh, we know that Marlowe was involved in two such duels using uh, swords, rapiers, and one of these was in Hog Lane in, in London, just around the corner from where he lived in, in Norton Falgate. Uh, and the second one was in Canterbury, when he was presumably um, had gone back home to visit his family. He had several brothers and sisters. What actually prompted him to do this, we don't know. Um, I I think he was basically simply a hothead. Um, He had a very short fuse. So, Sir Francis Walsingham dies in 1590. Do you think that when he passed, Marlowe became more vulnerable? Was Walsingham protecting him? I think that's absolutely right. Um, Walsingham seems to have been an extraordinarily efficient man. He knew exactly uh, how the country ticked. He could work with the Queen, who was a very difficult woman to work with. And um, without his his guiding hand, then it must have been more difficult for Marlowe. Yes, uh, it's not as it might be today, where um, someone is employed as a government agent. They they work for uh, in in the states, for example, that they are CIA or the FBI or whatever it is that the, they work for an institution. It's very much a, a personal thing. You work for Francis Walsingham. Uh, If Walsingham is gone, then what do you do? If you want to continue in that line of work, then you you have to uh, get it on with his successor. Uh, And his successor was Robert Cecil, who was a a very different kind of man indeed. He was much younger. He was Marlowe's age. And he was the son of uh, William Cecil, Lord Burley, who today would be regarded as a prime minister. There was no such title as prime minister in the 16th century, but uh, he was uh, he was the treasurer. He was the leading um, elder statesman of the Queen. Uh, he was still alive, but he was passing more and more onto his son, Robert, who was deformed. He wasn't a dwarf, he wasn't achondroplasic, but uh, he was extremely short, perhaps four and a half feet tall. Uh, and he had a chip on his shoulder uh, as a result of that deformity. So um, after 1590, with, with the death of Walsingham, we have uh, a new man at the helm, uh, and Marlowe has to basically start from the beginning. He has to make his way again, if you like, uh, if he wants to stay in the spying game. So things start getting more difficult for Marlowe in 1591, 1592. He starts feeling lots of pressure from uh, opposing forces. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would. What happened was that um, the the Dutch libel broke out. Now, these were 
pieces of paper that uh, appeared on the wall of the so-called Dutch church in London. Uh, appreciate that London uh, is and always was very much a, a cosmopolitan city. There were people living there for, from all over Europe and there was a, 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 a Dutch quarter in London. The Dutch were Protestants, just like the English, but they didn't mix uh, very much with the English. Uh, and there's a great deal of animosity towards foreigners um, Walter Raleigh, for example, spoke in, in Parliament about foreigners coming over, um, taking uh, English jobs, making life difficult for the English. Um, today, that kind of thing would be totally unacceptable, but it was the standard attitude in Elizabethan England. You must remember that only a few years earlier, Spain had tried to invade. They launched two fleets, the Armadas, against England. And it was really only a combination of uh, English seamanship and bad weather that meant that the Spaniards had not actually landed uh, and perhaps, who knows, um, had made England into a Spanish colony, uh, which Holland had been, the, the Dutch also under the control of Spain in this period. So there's a great deal of bad feeling towards the Dutch, and these pieces of paper that appeared on the wall of the Dutch church were written, it said, by Tamburlaine. In other words, the hero of Marlowe's first play. Everybody knew about this play. Everybody had, had seen the, the posters uh, all over London when it uh, came out a couple of years before this. And they naturally assumed that Tamburlaine was Marlowe. So here he is stirring up trouble for the Dutch. Uh, he is seen as a troublemaker. Those who knew him knew about his short temper. They knew he was difficult. Some of them might have known that he was uh, an atheist. Some of them might have known that he was homosexual, uh, which is another offence for which they killed you. So uh, this man has to be watched. He's not safe. Uh, and life for him must have been getting increasingly difficult. Do you believe that, that Marlowe was, was the one behind those posters? No, I don't. I, I think it was a put-up job. I think he was being framed uh, by the same people who eventually orchestrated his death. We'll obviously come on to that later. But with uh, Walsingham out of the way, and I think you're right, Walsingham was protecting him. He was looking after his people. Um, then there is this sense that Marlowe is adrift. Um, he is arrogant. Uh, he thinks he's rather um, more important than he is. He's maybe untouchable uh, and he, he needs to be taught a lesson. He, he needs to be put in his place in a variety of ways. Right, right. So by May of 1593, things were getting quite tense for Marlowe. Um, he was arrested at one point. People were apparently out to do him harm. And he ended up visiting an establishment on May 30th, operated by a woman named Eleanor Bull. Would you walk us through that day, who he was there with, and what happened to him? Uh, and keeping in mind that there are multiple theories on what that was, maybe start with the official version put forth by Sir William Danby. Yep. In May 1593... The pressure on Marlowe is, is such, 
that he does feel threatened, and it may be that he thought the best thing to do was perhaps to get out at least of London, if not the country itself. We know he was summoned by the Privy Council. These are the leading politicians of the day, and I'll come back to them later. Um, we don't know what was discussed. We don't know what they asked him or what they accused him of. Uh, but we know that he was under arrest. He was arrested, arrested by a man named Henry Maunder. Uh, and uh, he had to report every day to the Privy Council. It would be today as if he would have to go, say, to number 10 Downing Street every day. So he is being watched incredibly closely. He clearly can't leave the country. He can't even leave London because he has to he has to turn up in, in Whitehall, where the Privy Council are, uh, to report to them. What he reported, why he reported, we don't honestly know. But on the 30th of May, he ends up at Eleanor Ball's house in Deptford Strand, now, this is along the River Thames from London. Uh, then it would have been about just under an hour's ride away, I suppose. Um, most modern books will tell you that uh, uh, Kit Marlowe was killed in a tavern brawl, a fight uh, in a pub. In fact, the house was called an ordinary. It, it wasn't uh, a tavern or an inn at all. Um, we have no actual equivalent of an ordinary today, but it was a place where you could spend the day, uh, you could eat, you could drink, um, and then you would pay the host or, or the hostess at the end of the day for the privilege. Sometimes it operated as a hotel, so you'd stay overnight as well, but that wasn't necessarily built in. So on the 30th of May, presumably having reported in the morning to the Privy Council, uh, Marlowe goes to Eleanor Bull's house. Deptford uh, is still there, uh, but it was in, uh, in Marlowe's day uh, a, a large port. The part of the Thames, the River Thames, is very deep at that point, uh, and there were several ships moored there. So it's at least possible that Marlowe was intending to get on those ships and get the hell out while the going was good. The house itself, Eleanor Ball's house, uh, has now gone, um, as have all the original houses there. Only the church uh, of St. Nicholas is, is still there. There were other people um, at Eleanor Balls, and it's likely that Marlowe knew them all. The one he is most likely to have known was a man called Robert Poley, who, like him, was an intelligencer. He was a spy. They were both Cambridge men, although Poley is older than Marlowe, uh, and I can't believe that they hadn't met before. I, I think they had. The other two were Ingram Fraser and Richard Skiers. Now, these two men uh, were known as coney catchers in the day. Um, they were con men. The, the word coney means a rabbit, but uh, our, our word con, con artist, con man, uh, comes from it. And what these two would do is, is to pick up young men who had just arrived in London. London was a magnet for people from all over the country. There's the um, story in um, English folklore of uh, Dick Whittington, who was real. He, he was actually a mayor of uh, London in the 14th century. And Dick Whittington, according to the folklore story, which is, which is for kids, uh, went to London because he believed the streets were paved with gold. Uh, and a lot of people genuinely believed that in Marlowe's day, that you, you could become incredibly rich by going to London. 
Um, perhaps you might think in terms of Hollywood in the States. Uh, this idea of a magic place where anything is possible, where success is just around the corner. If only you meet the right people, have the right contacts, do the right thing, impress people, then ta-da, uh, you're made. So these were the gulls, as they were called. These were the innocent dupes who arrived in London only to be met by people like Ingram Fraser and Richard Skiers, who would take them for all they had. They'd buy them a drink, they'd show them around London, they would uh, get them to part with their money, and they made a very nice uh, living that way. Whether Marlowe knew these two, we don't know. He might have known them through theatre land. After all, people like this would hang around crowds going in and out of theatres. They would uh, pick the equivalent of pockets. We didn't have pockets in those days, but they'd pick purses uh, to steal money. So it's possible that, that they all knew, knew each other from that angle. According to the inquest that was held uh, after Marlowe's death, uh, it's all in Latin, by the way, except for one phrase in English which I don't understand, and nobody does. It's the phrase, near the bed. Those words are in English. Everything else is in Latin. And the coroner of the inquest was Sir William Danby, who owned property in Deptford. In fact, he owned the house in which Marlowe died. In fact, he was a cousin of Eleanor Bull. And I think that in itself is highly suspicious. It's not just chance. Uh, that was a definite place for Marlowe to be on the 30th of May, 1593. According to the inquest, um, the men who were there um, spent the day talking, walking in the garden, drinking, eating, uh, and in the evening, um, perhaps six o'clock or so, uh, they're at board, which means they were playing backgammon, which was a, a trendy game at the time. Now, I don't know if uh, any of your uh, listeners play backgammon, but you play it opposite your opponent. It's just like chess or drafts, what you call checkers. Um, one of you on one side of the board, the other on the other side of the board. According to the inquest, Kit Marlowe isn't actually playing. He is lying sprawled on a, a bed. So we can assume the room is probably upstairs in um, Eleanor Ball's house. Uh, and the three men, um, Fraser, Skiers and uh, Poli, are all sitting with their back to him side by side. Now, sorry, but that's not how you play backgammon. You can't play backgammon side by side. So why those three men are in that position, we don't know. But a quarrel broke out, according to the official version, according to the inquest, over the reckoning, that is, the payment for the day's services. Somebody had to pay Eleanor Ball for the food uh, and the drink and what, whatever she provided for them. Uh, and the quarrel got um, out of hand. Uh, Marlowe, short-tempered, uh, was refusing to pay. So were the others. And so what happened was that Marlowe grabbed Ingram Fraser's dagger, his knife, which, remember, he's carrying in the small of his back, as they all did. So um, he's sitting there with his back to Marlowe. Marlowe loses his cool, loses his temper, grabs the knife, bashes Fraser around the head, giving him two cuts. Pfizer turns and uh, grapples with Marlowe. They're, they're sort of wrestling together uh, and the knife is, is turned and stabs Marlowe in the head, either in the eye or just above the eye. It isn't, it isn't quite clear what the Latin actually means. And Marlowe would have died instantly. So 
that is the explanation that is given by Sir William Danby, uh, which he accepted. The 16 men and the coroner's jury accepted that that is what happened. Uh, nobody was interviewed. Eleanor Bull wasn't questioned. Ingram Fraser wasn't questioned. Richard Skears wasn't questioned. Robert Poley wasn't questioned. This information was given to Danby, presumably by one of them or all of them, we don't know, but they were not present in the courtroom at the time. So that is the official version of the death of Kit Marlowe. It was a fight in a tavern. And when you look at everything that doesn't add up, I just don't believe that. We will return after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. We are back again. So Robert Poley, again... He was a spy, just like Marlowe. Uh, many find it extremely suspicious that he was present when Marlowe was killed, and he very likely was part of a plot. And I assume you, you believe that he might have been as well. I do, I do. Uh, again, if you can imagine the scene, Marlowe lying on his bed, close to the bed are three men, all with their backs to him. He jumps up, annoyed over the bill, he grabs the knife of one of them in the middle, Ingram Prizer, and beats him around the head. What are the other two doing? If, if somebody attacks somebody with a knife that close, you do one of two things. You either join in and try and save your friend's life. You try and save uh, Ingram Prizer's life. Or you get the hell out. You run away. You don't want to be involved. You don't want to be stabbed too. So you move. They didn't. There was no mention 
of them moving at all. They seem to have just sat there and watched all this happen, which I don't believe. I think Marlowe was murdered by all three of them. I don't think there was any quarrel over the bill at all. I think the reason that Ingram Fraser's knife was the one that killed Marlowe is that Ingram Fraser probably used it himself, or if he didn't, Robert Poley did. Now, you're quite right. Poley is also an intelligencer. He is a spy uh, with more experience than Marlowe. We know he was in and out of prison at various times, which uh, either indicates that he was a, a dodgy criminal and dangerous with it, or he was put there as part of his spying activities in order to report back on somebody else who was in prison at the time. We know that Poli uh, travelled around Europe quite a bit. He, he turns up uh, in various places, uh, working presumably for Walsingham. Uh, and uh, he, he is a, a, a very slippery customer indeed. Whereas Ingram Fraser and Richard Skiers uh, are con men, they're not actually known for being violent at all, but Robert Poli has that air about him. There's nothing specifically that we can say, He's a murderer. He's a killer. Uh, but there is there is that image that, that he is he's a dangerous man to know. What do you think the motive would have been for Polly in, in killing Marlowe? Polly is basically a hitman. I think all three of them were, were told to silence Kit Marlowe. Uh, if his plan was to leave Deptford um, to get a ship. Uh, and leave the country, sail to Europe, perhaps. There's a, a theory he was going north to Scotland. Uh, then they wanted to stop him from doing that because he had information that they couldn't allow him to take with him out of the country. So he has to be stopped. His his mouth has to be um, shut up, is a, a phrase that occurs in, in some of the paperwork. Uh, and the way to do that, obviously, is is to murder him. Um, three men uh, against one is a, a fairly sure way that uh, it's it's going to work. So that was Poli's remit. He would have been sent by the Privy Council, especially uh, Lord Burley, um, to get Marlowe out of the way by whatever means at his disposal. They presumably, I can imagine, sat there all day chewing this over. What can we do? How can we do it? They were they were laughing and joking and drinking and eating. And all the time, they're, they're planning to find a time when they can finish Marlowe off. I think probably what happened is that Fraser and Skiers held Marlowe down. And while he's pinned to the floor, Poli would have attacked him from above. Uh, Attacking someone's head, going for the eye socket, is a very unusual move. Although actually, believe it or not, it was uh, a move in the fencing manuals of the time. And Marlowe was a fencer. He was a swordsman. Uh, presumably, Poli was as well. But even so, it's a very unusual thing to do. Normally, if you kill somebody, you go for the largest target. You go for the body. Uh, you might stab the head later, but the first thrust is going, going to be the body. You're going for the lungs, going for the heart, something like that. But the only wound on, on Marlowe was the eye, um, because he's lying down. He can't move. He's being pinned by the other two, uh, and um, Poli goes in for the kill, with a downward thrust. 
it's true, right, that in Marlowe's last couple of plays, he was very critical of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, those who didn't like Elizabeth, those who didn't like the, the, the government of England by the 1590s, call it the Regnum Sicilianum, the government of the Cecils, in other words, Lord Burley and his son. Elizabeth had been queen since uh, 1558, and there's a definite shift in attitude ab about her. Um, when she starts off, she's the virgin queen. Everybody's glowing about her. She's called Gloriana. They equate her with Greek goddesses and God knows what. They spend a fortune entertaining her. She travels around the countryside. She goes to Lord Dudley's castle at Kenilworth, uh, not far from where Shakespeare lived. Uh, and he puts on a, an amazing display for her, which cost then £3,000 a day. That's something like 4000 Five hundred dollars a day, uh, which is a ridiculous amount of money. It'd be millions by today's standards. So she, the, the Queen can do no wrong. But by the fifteen nineties, all that's changed. She's been around too long. Her teeth have fallen out. Her hair has fallen out. Uh, she still thinks of herself as being God's gift to, to men. That she's gorgeous and attractive, but she certainly wasn't. She refused to marry. So she has no direct heir to follow her. Uh, she quarreled with her parliaments over that issue and all kinds of issues. Um, there was a price on her head because in 1570, the, the Pope uh, had actually um, authorized Catholics to kill her. She was referred to as the Jezebel of England, Jezebel being uh, a prostitute in the Bible. Uh, and it was okay, said the Pope. In fact, it was the duty of Catholics to kill the Jezebel of England. So the country is heavily hit by taxation. There are many rebellions and riots going on all over the place. The Queen is losing her grip, basically. And the, 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 the government who are working for her uh, are, are seen to be losing their grip too. Marlowe's plays, especially Edward II, hint at all this. Edward II, of course, was a real king of England back in the 13th century. Uh, he himself was murdered because he upset his nobility in a variety of ways. Uh, and he was murdered in Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. Uh, so there are all kinds of hints in Edward II about bad government about the fact that the, the ruler is not doing their job properly. And maybe, just maybe, it's okay for people to do something about that, to topple the government, even perhaps so far as to kill the queen. So here we have a man who is a spy, a man who is a household name in theatrical circles, um, who is saying uh, the most appalling things. He's saying what the Catholic Church was saying back in 1570. So he's got to be shut up. So do you think that orders went from Queen Elizabeth through the Privy Council to Poli? I don't think the Queen is involved. She was a feisty woman. She was a difficult woman. But I, I don't think she would have sanctioned murder. No. Um, there were a number of burnings of Catholics during her the, the early part of her reign, but nowhere near as many as the number of Protestants who were burned by her sister Mary, Mary Tudor, uh, in the years before that. Uh, we have no record that uh, Elizabeth actually killed people, although oddly enough, 
hers is the only reign when it's officially sanctioned for the government to use torture. Torture had been used throughout history in virtually every country in the world, uh, and it still was, of course, for many years after this. But it's only in Elizabeth's reign that there is an actual law permitting torture to be used. So maybe she was a, a harder nut than we think. But I still don't believe that. I, I think the idea to shut Marlowe up came from uh, the council itself. Not all of them, because there were 13 of them altogether. I think it came from, from those four. It came from uh, William Cecil. Lord Burley came from his son, Robert, and it came from the other two, uh, Lord Howard of Effingham, who was the guy who uh, led the English fleet in the Armada a few years earlier. And uh, the, the fourth one was Henry Carey, Baron Hunsdon. And the reason I think Hunsdon is involved is that uh, his son, George, George Carey, was also a member of the School of Night, like Raleigh and perhaps like Kit Marlowe. Some people out there have, have proposed the theory that Sir Walter Raleigh, who was afraid of being connected to the School of Night, was part of the plot to kill Marlowe because he was afraid that Marlowe might expose yeah, him. Yeah, there, there, there is that theory, and, and uh, it, it doesn't work for me because of the kind of man that Raleigh was. Um, he was a soldier, uh, he was an adventurer, sailing all over the world, taking on um, Spanish warships and, and so on. If he had if he had a beef with Kit Marlowe, I, I think he'd have gone for him himself. They'd have gone toe to toe. They'd have fought somewhere in, in an alleyway with knives and swords and the whole thing. Uh, I don't think he, he would use anything as sneaky uh, as to pay somebody else to, to kill Marlowe for him. It, it just it, it it doesn't fit with Raleigh's reputation. I do have to ask you this, of course, uh, because there are so many people that believe Marlowe faked his own death. W would you explain this belief, this theory? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've got a sneaky uh, confession uh, to make here, Eric. Um, uh, as you know, um, my wife and I write a series of uh, novels, fiction, uh, featuring Kit Marlowe as our detective. And uh, we wrote the last one with his death at Deadford a couple of years ago. But we are thinking sneakily of bringing him back this is strictly between you and me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'll let you know how it goes because it's going to be a difficult one to do. But yes, it is a theory. The theory runs like this, that there was a, a man called John Penry who was actually a Puritan. He was a staunch Protestant. Um, and uh, he was executed uh, on the 29th of May, the day before Marlowe died. And he was hanged. But because he was more or less Marlowe's age, and few people would have known, of course, what Marlowe actually looked like, and nobody would have known what John Penry looked like, uh, what happened was that um, Marlowe's body substituted for, 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 for Penry's or the other way around. So it was Penry who was at the inquest, as it were, wrapped in his shroud. He, his was the body that the um, jurymen saw, not Kit Marlowe's. Why would Marlowe do this? Well, obviously, so he could stay alive, so he could do a runner, he could leave the country, he could disappear. Um, and they had a convenient body to hand um, to make it look as if, yes, Kit Marlowe is dead. Of course, had the jurors looked closely at John Penry's neck, 
they would have seen the mark of the rope around it. But perhaps they didn't do that. They were, after all, directed to look at his head, look at his eye, the wound. The wound could have been made post-mortem after he was dead. So why do people believe this? Um, Because they want to, because they can't stand the thought of um, brilliant people like Marlowe um, being snuffed out so young. Uh, there are all kinds of examples of this in history. We have in in the UK, we've got our famous King Arthur, who, if he was real at all, was actually uh, a, a sixth century warlord. He wasn't a king with, with a castle ca- called Camelot, and he didn't have a round table of knights or anything like that. That is all legend. It's all fiction. But the story goes with Arthur that he didn't die either. Uh, that he is waiting under a hillside in in Wales for the time when his country will need him. We have another one of a contemporary of Kit Marlowe, Francis Drake, who fought in the Armada, who was also uh, an adventurer sailing around the world, Uh, that he too didn't die, but he's waiting um, to be summoned again if Spain should ever attack England once more. Then the ghost of Francis Drake will come back and, and save us. Uh, in in the states, I'm thinking of the um, the country artist uh, Jim Reeves, the actor James Dean, um, Elvis. So many people couldn't accept that these men were actually dead because they meant so much to them that they were quite happy to buy into a story that the whole thing was cover up and they're actually still alive. And I think that that's true of Kit Marlowe too. So there's an interesting coincidence, uh, right? That William Shakespeare starts really actively producing his plays almost immediately following Marlowe's death. Yeah. That's exactly right. As I as I hinted earlier, I think it's highly likely that Marlowe and Shakespeare at least collaborated to an extent on what we think of as Shakespeare's early plays, like Richard III, like uh, the three parts of Henry VI. And once Marlowe was dead, and I'm putting little inverted commas in, in the air around that, uh, then he could simply become William Shakespeare. It, it's very odd about Shakespeare and we could do a, a a podcast on him if you wanted to, because his his um, life in Stratford has no bearing on his brilliance as a playwright at all. Uh, I've been to his tomb uh, in the church in Stratford, uh, and there is a, a an awful much later uh, bust on the wall nearby uh, of this rather plump guy uh, with a quill in his hand, a a pen and a book in front of him. But there is nothing from Shakespeare's time in Stratford which tells us about the plays or the poetry or anything about his London life. We think that he went to London. We assume he wrote the plays. We assumed they were performed in various London theatres and for the court. And then having made his money, he came back to Stratford, built a, a very nice new house, and lived happily ever after. But all this is an assumption. And the man from Stratford seems to be incredibly dull, incredibly boring. Nobody famous ever came to see him uh, in his later life when he was there. He never spoke about his plays. He never spoke about his London experience whatsoever. And that really doesn't make sense. So the inference is that 
he didn't do it. He was quite happy to lend his name to it. And you can imagine a situation that Marlowe wrote the plays and the poetry and gave Shakespeare a handout to keep him quiet, which would have been perfectly happy. Um, Shakespeare can, can go back home, he can bask in the money he's got, he can build his new house, and uh, everything in the garden is absolutely rosy. Marlowe, in the meantime, is presumably hiding hiding somewhere under an assumed name and is churning out these plays, he's churning out the sonnets, uh, and it is not um, Shakespeare at all, but Kit Marlowe, uh, who, who is the genius behind the whole thing. Yeah. And by the way, I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that Marlowe took secrets to his grave, secrets that threatened the lives or livelihoods uh, of those who you believe murdered him? And if so, what do you think those secrets were? I think the secret is, is this, that there were two documents uh, which we haven't mentioned. One is the Baines note, and the other uh, is the reminiscences of Richard Chomley. Now, Richard Baines and Richard Chomley were two highly dodgy characters. They were both involved somehow in the world of espionage. I don't think they were necessarily actually spies, but they knew people who were, and they knew members of the School of Night, certainly. Uh, it's from Richard Baines. The, the note uh, appeared in 1593, shortly after Marlowe's death, uh, that we have famous lines like Marlowe saying, uh, and I'm quoting here, that all they that love not tobacco and boys were fools. Uh, tobacco, of course, was the new trendy thing to, to uh, smoke in um, Marlowe's day. In fact, they called it drinking smoke. You didn't smoke, you drank smoke. And this this was a new thing, which I believe came from your country, didn't it, originally? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I also think, by the way, that it wasn't tobacco as we now know it. I think it was rather wackier than that. I think it was weed. Because if you if you read the description of um, the way in which tobacco in Marlowe's day, the people who, who, who drank it, who smoked it, are behaving very oddly indeed. So I don't think it was just tobacco by any means. So Marlowe, we can assume, smoked. Marlowe, possibly, probably perhaps, was homosexual. Uh, and Baines writes all this down. He, he's damning Marlowe. This is where the, the stuff comes about uh, Moses being a conjurer and Jesus and John the Baptist being lovers and so on. All that comes from the Baines note. Chumley, though, is even more damning, not about Marlowe, but about those four members of the Privy Council themselves. Um, so we're talking here about the Cecils, father and son, we're talking about Howard of Effingham, we're talking about Baron Hunsdon. And he says that all these men are atheists too, that they don't believe in God. Now, I, I can't imagine the impact that that would have had at the time had this become public knowledge. Of course, we don't know if it's true. It may be that Chumley uh, is just making it up, that he's talking nonsense, that he was some kind of lunatic with an, an agenda of his own. We don't know. But what if he's right? What if he knew through the school of night? Remember that one of those four, Henry Carey, his son George, is a member of the school of 
that night. So he might have known exactly what was being discussed by them. And what was being discussed by them was the fact that these four uh, believed what the school of night believed, that there is no God. It was an absolutely shocking thing to do. It was dynamite. It would have destroyed the government completely, which is why Marlowe had to be silenced. So if I'm right, and if the theory that Marlowe survived is right, then those men must have been shaking in their boots for the rest of their lives because they didn't know where he was. They didn't know what he would do. They didn't know how much information he would give out. Well, what a fascinating mystery. So much intrigue. It must have been just a wild time to be alive. Uh, I'm curious, what do you do with Kit Marlowe in your, your fiction series? Do you make him? We follow uh, his life as faithfully uh, as we can. So it starts with him as a scholar in the King's School. Uh, and then he goes up to Cambridge and he is recruited by Walsingham himself. And he goes to London and becomes part of the theatre crowd and, and so on. So al although he's solving murders on the way, and that is pure fiction, of course, um, it actually does faithfully record what we know about Marlowe's life. Uh, when we start the... Um, New, new part of the series, when we begin again, uh, obviously there we are completely on our own. We're, we're into the unknown. Interesting. So for people who want to learn more about you and your work, where should we direct them? Well, I, I do have a website, uh, but it's very much um, behind hand now. I let it go. I haven't kept it up and I, I apologize for that. Uh, if you want a, a list of my books, if you go onto Amazon, uh, then they're all there and they're all available and um, uh, knock yourself out. There's there's fiction, there's non-fiction, all, all kinds of things there. At the moment, I'm actually writing a book on Hollywood versus history. Um, not just Hollywood itself, but movies generally. How accurate are they? Have they got it right? And the answer, of course, is no, of course they haven't. But it's, it's great fun to work on. It really is. Oh, that sounds like a cool project. Well, well, thanks again for telling us all about Kit Marlowe. My pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, I have been speaking to MJ Tro. He is the author of Who Killed Kit Marlowe? A Contract to Murder in Elizabethan England. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Have a safe tomorrow.